We're in Psalms. Uh, we did 136 to 139 last week. And so as you may recall, we're in the last book of Psalms, the fifth book, which encompasses Psalms 107 to 150. And we talked last week about the sister book in the Torah or the Pentateuch that it's Deuteronomy. We saw last week a lot of verses in Deuteronomy uh, parallel what is in this book as well. And so uh, this week we're not going to see so much uh, Deuteronomy, but uh, we also may recall the, the two themes of, or the basic lesson of this fifth book, which we talked about last week, is that it drove home the point that his mercy endures forever. I think if, uh, right, it doesn't endure a day, a week, or a month, it endures forever. And if you remember our antif antiphonal uh, reading of the, of the Psalm 136, which I think it got drilled into our head, right, as the men spoke one part and the women the other. So we learned about antiphonal psalms and that the Lord's mercy endures forever. And we also learned that uh, they and we will see God's hesed, so his steadfast or loyal love, and, the, and to really truly understand the loving kindness of the Lord. Those are key messages in this fifth book of the Psalms. So there's no coincidences uh, in God's economy, right? There's only God incidences. So there's no coincidence that God's driving home the teaching of grace through Tim on Sunday. So as he went through, and you can re recall Tim teaching uh, what Paul said on grace many times mentioning grace. And I think Tim had a Alan Redpath definition, which he was saying was the best definition of grace. And that, um, and Paul's many teachings through Acts, etc. And now God's driving home the point of his mercy on Wednesday night. So we have grace on Sunday, and we have mercy that endures forever at this time on Wednesday nights. And so I apologize that our slides uh, did not make it through, so I can't put these... Uh, these definitions up, but gotquestions.org says it rightly. It says, in the Bible, mercy is extended to an offender in the form of forgiveness or to the suffering in the form of healing or other comfort. In any case, mercy can be characterized as compassionate treatment of those in distress. And so that's a key word, distress, because we find David is in a lot of distress and we may find that as well. So whether the distress is caused by the guilt or penalty of sin, or by a debilitating physical condition, mercy is there to help us. And he goes, it goes on to say, in common usage, mercy and grace are often used interchangeably, but they do not mean the same thing. They are integrally related and may be considered two sides of the same coin in salvation. So when God saves a person, he extends both mercy and grace. So mercy is forgiving the sinner and withholding the punishment that is justly Deserved, but grace is he heaping up undeserved blessings upon the sinner. So in salvation, and this is a key thing that I took away from it, in salvation, God does not show one without the other. So in Christ, the believer experiences both grace and mercy. So note the statement that it says, compassionate treatment of those in distress. And so we're going to see that this week uh, from David in multiple distressing situations. But it's not really so much about the facts of David's situations, but it's more about how he approaches them and how he approaches God through them. So we'll have a little bit of a, a lengthier like intro and discussion on the first couple of verses, and I promise it'll pick up after that. So 
Uh, so just hang with us. So do you face distress? Do I face distress? Or is everybody distress-free? I think we all can relate, right? We all have some amount of distress. And I guess they, it's been said there's two types of motorcycle riders. So I don't know if there's motorcycle riders here. Those that have been down and those that are going down, right? And so you could say the same thing about distress. If you don't have distress, you're probably eventually going to uh, face distress at some point in time. The Bible says there's going to be trouble in this world, right? So it's just, and I'm not saying these things to just totally depress you on a Wednesday night, but it's why God places these next few Psalms of David here, which is to provide us practical, spiritual, biblical examples to, pl- to apply to our lives. That, and God is so good this way and that we will see his steadfast love and mercy enduring forever. It was there for David. It's here for us now, and it will be going forward. So with that backdrop, uh, let's uh, pray and get into this week's uh, Psalms. Heavenly Father, we just thank you uh, for that, for your enduring mercy. Lord, it never runs out. And man, thank God for that. Lord, that no matter what distress that we may have been through, we might be going through right now, or we may face in the future, we know none of it happens without you being in it uh, with us. And Lord, even if we push you away from it and we run away from you and that causes our distress that you pursue us you chase us down lord you leave the 99 and you come looking for us lord we're so eternally grateful for that lord help us teach us uh, practical things here uh, and insightful things about how uh, from the lessons from david here about how he approached you in these distressful situations and that may we see it uh, in our lives how it applies we just pray all this in jesus name amen So how does book five, uh, this book five theme continue? This enduring mercy, this steadfast loving kindness continue to play out? Well, Psalms 140 to 143 are Psalms of David. And so actually 138 to 145 are like the last grouping of David's Psalms. And so David writes approximately half the Psalms. 138 to 145 are his last grouping of, of Psalms. So we're in 140 to 143. And according to Halley's, uh, they, they kind of labeled them. These, are, these four psalms that we'll do tonight are prayers for protection. Prayers for protection. So who needs protection? <laughs> Everybody's raising their hand. That's right. Everybody needs protection. So instead of just telling you what type of protection, I guess I'll just ask them in a question form here. So who wants protection from enemies? Who wants protection from enemies? We may even just say <laughs> the enemy and his minions, right? But... We could say, who wants protection from that? Everybody raises their hand. Who wants protection from sin and wickedness? Right? That'll be in Psalm 141. So enemies is in 140. Uh, Protection from sin and wickedness is in 141. So who needs or is or has been in refuge and needs help while they're in refuge? Right? Okay, we're going to see that um, in 142 because we see David there in a cave in his early life and we're going to see that lesson and how that can apply. Now, this next one is a bit of a stretch in a literal form, and maybe, hopefully it doesn't apply to anyone, but it could, because uh, it did for David. Who needs protection from a child that's pursuing them to kill them to take their throne? That's probably not something, hopefully, that happens, but I know there were some people in my life growing up and, and not far from us that really had those situations, and it's horrific when it happens in a family like that. I would maybe just adjust it slightly to make, make it more applicable is, uh, you know, who needs, uh, you know, guidance 
in a difficult or a divisive family situation, right? So um, that would be Psalm 143. And we can take that lesson from David in one, Psalm 143. So if there's anyone here or, or watching online or that would ever watch this online that says this is an old dead book, how does it re relate to my life today that there's no connection? You know, King Saul isn't chasing me down in West Elizabeth, PA, and trying to, to hunt me down so I won't take his throne, right? I don't have a son Absalom chasing me down, trying to take my throne, or whatever objection, you just fill in the blanks, you know? And so if you're here and you're that person, you know, and that you're just feeling maybe blinded to the truth, or maybe you never learned what the truth was, you know, the question is, how does an eternally living God speak non-eternal words? So how does an eternally living God speak non-eternal words? That's not possible, I don't think, right? And how can a God that's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow have an ever-changing non-absolute truth? <laughs> that's also not possible, right? These things aren't possible. So if you're in the camp that this word is outdated or, gee, it just doesn't have any application to me, my life, our times, if that's you right now, I pray that the Lord would open you up by the power of the Holy Spirit to his absolute, eternally loving kindness, this truth, right? And or lead you to a repentant heart so that you can see it, that it can and does apply and speak directly to us in a way that is similar to David, might not be the same, but it would be similar to David in his time. We can take lessons from it here. I mean, David just didn't write this down for himself so he could look at it later, right? These are God's words for eternity, amen? Amen. So he writes this so others may learn to pray and to hear from and to know God. Why would he do that? Because nothing would please God more than to hear from his children. Right? Amen. So let's start with that question. Who wants to please God? <laughs> A lot of softball questions, right? Okay, so I asked that question now. So we're gonna, when we get to the end, please remember that. Tuck that away. All right, so Psalm 140. <clears throat> prayer for deliverance from evil men or enemies. And so many think this is perhaps early in David's years or on King Saul's, when he was on King Saul's official staff, but the staff was starting to go south, right? So Saul was starting to have those thoughts like, hey, I don't like what's happening. David is kind of rising in fame and power and, you know, he's not liking it. He's getting paranoid. And now his leadership team is starting to say, hey, we don't like David either. And they're starting to come after him. They're starting to slander him. And they're starting to attack him. So Psalm 140, verse 1. Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their hearts. They continually gather for war. And so I highlighted evil and hearts. And when I think of evil heart, I think of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 17, 9 that says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And so that applies to all of us that are apart from Christ. Um, a little Bible word fact, according to Blue Letter Bible, the word, the word love shows up in the New King James uh, version 322 times. So anybody have a guess of how many times the word wicked shows up? Oop. Somebody looked it up already. What's that? 10 times as many? Nope. 324, so just a couple more. How many times does evil show up? 
That's 457 times. So wickedness and evil are outweighing love, right? So if all hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, is David praying for protection from everyone? <laughs> you know, I think that would be paranoia. It's kind of what Saul does. But, and it would just be plain exhausting, really. Like if you're walking out the door, everybody's after me, everybody's wicked. So it's not necessarily that. Um, but if we go back to the verses, it says, who plan uh, evil things in their hearts? So for sure, right, this is speaking more to about Saul and his leadership team, right? Um, and that, you know, they're starting to plan these evil things in their hearts. So furthermore, it says that folks are continually gathering together for war. So perhaps you know some folks like this. You know, do you think our brothers and sisters in Ukraine need a psalm, a song, a prayer such as this? For sure, I would think they would. Well, this is speaking about Saul and his leaders as they continually pursued him. And while we aren't being pursued by Saul and his leaders, you know, how, how, can, this, how can I apply this to my life? Right, But who else might be and is pursuing an attack on us? Where is another battleground? Well, we'd say life, right? So there's one example of how this battleground is in life today and even specifically an example in, in marriage. So Lori and I went to a family, a family weekend to remember back in November before Thanksgiving, and it was, it was great, but one of the teachings which really just sounds weird outside of the context of the actual class is, and this is the first thing that rolled off my tongue to Tim when he said, hey, how was it? I said, well, remember, your spouse is not your enemy. <laughs> Tim's like, okay. <laughs> and how much did you pay for that class? <laughs> you know, Might have got ripped off, right? And, uh, but it was in page 55 of our program, so I'm not going to go through pages 1 through 54, obviously. But it says this. It says, the Bible... The Bible speaks of three major threats to your life and to marriage. Three major threats to your life and marriage. It starts out by saying, Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And it said the three uh, threats to our life and to marriage also. Are three, there's three, three threats. One is invisible, one is etern, internal, and one is external. So the invisible threat is Satan. Satan is there that's a threat to our life. Internally, it's my flesh and me. You know, So I'm a threat, <laughs> my own flesh, like my weakness. And then externally would be the world. And so what it says, it says, note, when you look at this list, note that your spouse did not make the top three. <laughs> Right, and it sounds silly when you say it, but you know, Tim Challies had they put a Tim Challies quote at the bottom of that and said, "Marriage is under attack. Marriage has always been under attack. The world, the flesh, the devil are all adamantly opposed to marriage, and especially to marriages that are distinctly Christian. Marriage, after all, is given to, given by God to strengthen His people and to glorify Himself. Little wonder then that it is constantly a great battleground." And it drives home the point, remember, your spouse is not your enemy. And again, we can laugh about that, but I know if we have some tension between us, I'm not fighting Satan. I don't go and fight Satan. I don't go and fight with myself. And I don't go and fight with the world. Who do you tend to fight with? You tend to fight 
with your spouse. And so that's how Satan works. He takes a crevice, he takes a, uh, a situation, and he just inhabits that, and he just kind of, you know, pits us against one another. And it takes the, the world and makes it attractive to us, and then my flesh gets the best of me, and next thing you know, we're battling it out with our spouse, right? So um, the cross-reference to this uh, verse, the second verse in Psalm 140, is Psalm 56, verse 6, and it says, They gather together... They hide and they mark my steps when they lie in wait for my life. And so Psalm 56 was titled, A Prayer for Relief from Tormentors. And it was set to the, the chief, it was to the chief musician, set to the silent dove in distant lands, a victim of David when the Philistines captured him at Gath. So why would we want to look at this psalm when we're already in Psalm 140? Well, for one, it's a cross-reference in my Bible and it, it helped me to understand a little better. But also, the, um, the language is, is similar, but it's different. David, in different seasons in his, li in his life, constantly right, are dealing with difficult situations. So carrying out God's mission doesn't mean it's going to be easy street. There's going to be challenging roads, obstacles, enemies, and stress in our paths as Christians, you know, even as non-Christians. It rains on the just and the unjust. So perhaps marriage isn't your current battleground, or maybe you're not married, well, do you have an addiction to social media? Do you have an addiction to pornography, to shopping, to alcohol, to gambling, uh, to workaholism? When I, when I typed workaholism the first time, I misspelled it, and I, it said wokeaholism. <laughs> so I said, well, I, le I left it there because, yeah, we can be addicted to the next greatest trend all the time, and we can just be caught up on it. But really, anything that is driving you to be independent from God is the most critical threat in your life. So just as the Philistines had captured David in Psalm 56, perhaps something else has captured you and me, and it's wedging itself between you and God and your walk with you and, and the Lord or with your spouse or with your children or with your family. So the enemy of your soul and my soul doesn't want us to be fully sanctified and transformed into the Savior's likeness. So this separation can get wider and deeper and eventually lead to a breakdown, which we talked about last week. We talked about the car manufacturer versus the, the human manufacturer, God himself, right? And what we do when we break down, we take it to the divine manufacturer. So perhaps here too, bless you, perhaps here too, we're facing another battle in our lives. Are we frustrated and angry with God for allowing these things in our lives? Or are we going to him in prayer before, during, and after these situations? You know, if you recall from Psalm 139 last week, that great psalm that talked about how God knew all of our days before any of them existed. His eyes actually saw the, our substance before it was even formed into life. He saw it as we were formed into life and conceived, and there was no part of the womb that God wasn't there when it happened, and He was making it happen. And as we grew, and then we were birthed, and now we live and breathe, right? So God is there through all of that, so it only makes sense to reason that God is with us before, during, and after our distress right? Just makes sense to, to think of it as that way. But it's not really that if God is with us in those situations, it's are you and I yoking up with him in that process? Are we actively going to him, proactively going to him? Or is it reactively like, oh man, yeah, after the situation, you totally blew it. Say, no, Lord, you know, I, where were you? You know, and really it was, where was I? 
So are we inviting him in? Why wouldn't we invite him in? You know, we, we all know and we all say it, if God is for us, who can be against us, right? So a, a side note, a funny story, when I, when I was writing this, it's just this story came to, to my mind, I don't know why, but um, there was a, uh, a radio show that had uh, Gene Collier, he was a sports writer for, uh, in Pittsburgh for many years, and so this goes back probably 25 years ago, and he was telling a story on the, on the radio show about how he was a writer 10 years prior in Philadelphia. I was hoping John Kenny would be here, but all of our guys that just came back from Philadelphia, you might relate to this. So he was telling a story. They were all sports writers, and they were covering the NFL draft. And so as they were covering the draft, he said, really, it's like there's stuff that goes on, and then like at noon, like there's nothing to do, and it's kind of boring. And he said, so the one day, they're all sitting around, and I guess at 12, 1 o'clock, and they're just bored. And they said, hey, let's, let's do something different. Let's have a mock draft. And they said, okay. And they said, but instead of like, we're going to pick people to be football players, but instead of picking football players, you can pick anybody that ever lived at any time on earth. And so they were like, okay. And they're like, take 15 minutes, go think about anybody who's ever lived and come back with your picks. And so they said, all right. So they did that, broke away for 15 minutes. Guy comes up, and they had a little podium. They made it like a real draft, and this guy gets up, and he says, all right, with the first pick, the Philadelphia Eagles take Ben Franklin. And they're like, Ben Franklin? Who would pick out of anybody in the whole world? He goes, well, you know, he's a big guy. He's smart. He's inventive. He's creative. You know, hey, you could build a nation around this guy. You know, and they pick, okay, he's offensive lineman. So then they say, all right, next guy gets up, and he says, ah, Genghis Khan. And he said, oh, man, the guy's a, he's an animal, you know, he's so powerful and nobody can get around him, you know. And so the next guy, Gene Collier, gets up and he says, oh, Attila the Hun, you know, gosh, covers the whole field. He's just, he's a defensive end. He's crazy. He said, I forget who the fourth and fifth person are. He said, but then this other writer comes up and he goes, with the sixth pick, the Philadelphia Eagles pick, Jesus of Nazareth. And then they all go... <laughs> He goes, I can't even believe he was still available. <laughs> you know, he's in the sixth round. And he goes, the guy works miracles. He even knows the plays before they happen, you know. And they were like, well, it, it may, we may as well just go home because it's all over, right? And so it's a funny story, but it's not a funny story, right? Because he was the sixth pick. <laughs> and then I, I kind of laugh and go, well, those idiots, why didn't they pick him the first time? But then I look in the mirror and I go, is Jesus always my first pick when I'm in a distressful situation? Is he my second pick or my third pick? Where am I going for my help when I'm in a distressful situation? Or who am I going to or what am I going to, right? And so we can laugh about it, but it's really uh, something that, you know, we have to really be truthful with ourselves about. Where do we go? What's our first pick in our distress? So we need help. I need help. I know. I think others may do. So let's continue to learn from David. David's going to give us great lessons. So we'll pick up the speed here now. So uh, verse 3 continues in Psalm 140. They sharpen their tongues like a serpent. The poison of asps is under their lips. Selah. Keep me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from violent men. The proud have hidden a snare for me in cords, and they have spread a net by the wayside. They have set traps for me. Selah. So David describes this scene very vividly, right? These evil people are trying to trip him up. They trip they're trying to trip me up, you up, snare me up. Again, think of your upcoming uh, distress or one you're maybe in the middle of right now. 
or something that maybe you just came out of, right? Compare your approach uh, to this from David. Here's what David says. Think about what you say and I say. He says, I said to the Lord, you are my God. Hear the voice of my supplications, O Lord. O God, the Lord, the strength of my salvation, you have covered, or some say sheltered, my head in the day of battle. Do not grant, O Lord, the desires of the wicked. Do not further his wicked scheme, lest they be exalted. Selah. So this sounds, I'm sure, just like what you and I say, right? I mean, it should sound like what I say, um, but I don't know if, if I'm being truthful if it always does. But it could, and it should. So what does David do? He goes to the Lord and he prays. He acknowledges God, asks him to hear the voice of his prayers. I thought that was kind of interesting. It's his prayers have a voice, you know. And so why a voice? Because I think they're like living petitions, you know. Maybe it's imagery, but maybe, um, you know, being forced to say them out loud, right, means something. It's felt deeper down. It's humbling yourself, humbling himself before the Lord. And he prays for the sinners not to be successful. I love that personally. Remove their evil desires, Lord, it says. So he's praying for the sinners not, that are coming at him, coming for him, not to be successful. It's a great prayer example. Pray for the wicked sinners not to be, or praying for the sinners coming to me to be unsuccessful. Perhaps you and I look back on a distressful situation and see, wow, I wish I, could have, I would have said that when I was doing it. I wonder how the outcome might have changed. But we can't beat ourselves up. More distress is coming. So we have plenty of opportunity to apply it to the next one or even the current one if we're in it now. So verse 9 continues, As for the head of those who surround me, let the evil of their lips cover them. Let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into the fire, into deep pits, that they not rise up again. Verse 11 says, Let not a slanderer be established in the earth, let evil hunt the violent man to overthrow him. And Pastor Chuck Smith always says, I would hate to be one of David's enemies with his prayers like this, right? Amen. David knows God and is, that he's a just and merciful God. And he knows that sinning will prove out his attackers, right? Your sin is going to find you out or you're going to reap what you sow or eventually or what comes around goes around. All of these are, are right. And that's kind of what David is saying. He's just praying that truth into this situation, like, Lord, let the evil of their lips cover them, right? So let it just be, that's all people see is just their evilness and the evil, that they're evildoers. Show them for who they are. Don't let these slanderers take root and get away with it. Let them reap what they sow. So it's a great continuance of a prayer here. Again, have I prayed like this before? You know, this is a lesson for me. I know it spoke to me about what I need to do and step up my prayer life in my distress. But if we haven't done it yet, today is a new day. So verse 12 says, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and justice for the poor. Surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name. The upright shall dwell in your presence. So David has many enemies, right, who drove him ever closer to God. You know, he prayed for the ultimate destruction of these uh, wicked, but uh, he knows the promise of God. And I said, you know, do you know the promises of God or do I? Am I praying like that? And this impacts him eternally because he knows the promise of God. An eternal kingdom is going to come through David. He, he expands the promised land. He ends up writing half the Psalms. He makes instruments to praise and worship uh, the Lord. And, and he would get the temple supplies ready for his son Solomon to do it. So David knew the promises. He knew that he was going forward and he prayed that way all because he trusted the Lord, continually going to the Lord and yielding to him 
and his situations, and the Lord was faithful to meet him there. So again, it's a great example for you and I to learn, and this is not just a David benefit or an Old Testament truth of God. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and there's no partiality in God's kingdom. So even though David was a king, it's no different than a peasant, no different than you and I, and it applies to all of us. Amen. All right, Psalm 141, prayer for safekeeping and from wickedness or from sin. And so many think this could be a companion psalm or a continuation of the previous psalm, or it could just be describing a similar attack as in Psalm 140 because it has a lot of similar language. So verse 1 says, Lord, I cry out to you. Make haste to me. Give ear to my voice when I cry out to you. Let my prayer be set before you as incense the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So in Revelation 5 and 8, there's much talk here about incense and prayers of the saints that go up together before God. Revelation 5, 8 says, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The incense are the prayers of the saints. And Revelation 8, 3 and 4 talks about this incense that he should offer it with the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of the saints, ascended before God. All right? So verse 2 says, Let my prayer be set before you as incense. And so that's David's time, and it's also in Revelation. God's the same today, yesterday, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. But notice, David is in another challenging situation. And what's, the first, what's his first step that he demonstrates? Lord, I cry out to you. He goes to the Lord first. Let's learn from this. I have to learn from this. And I know it's as simple as the order is that. You would think, how, how simple can it be? Just go to the Lord first. It's not that hard, right? That's about the simplest instruction that can be. But sometimes in my haste, I just react before going to the Lord. And he says, make haste to me. I think, wow, what boldness that David is saying. He's telling God, hurry up, right? Hurry up, Lord. This is a serious situation. Well, doesn't the Lord know it's a serious situation? Sure, but he still prays it that way. And it's okay to pray that way. The Lord doesn't have to move if he doesn't want to, but there's nothing wrong with him praying for it, right? Lord, Lord, just hurry up, please. I need your help. Verse 3, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. <laughs> Keep watch over the door of my lips. Okay, who needs this one? <laughs> I think we should all be raising our hands probably. Is a quick emotional response and distress your thing? Are you quick-tempered, short-fused? Do you shoot first and ask questions later? Do you let your buttons get pushed easily, right? There's a lot of us like that that can just be emotional in our response before just taking the time to respond. Proverbs 13.3 says, He who guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. And Proverbs 21, 23 continues, whoever guards his mouth and tongue keeps his soul from troubles. So if I would have asked, hey, who wants to preserve their life, avoid destruction, and uh, keep his soul from troubles, who would want that? We'd all say yes, amen, right? So it says, what do we have to do? Kind of shut up, I guess, is what it's trying to tell us, right? Just guard, guard my mouth and my tongue, man. Help, help just seal it up. So verse 4 continues, do not incline my heart to any evil thing, to practice wicked works with men who work iniquity and do not let me eat of their delicacies. So David is praying to keep his mouth, heart, 
a mouth and heart pure, free from anything. And I just wrote, why? Why would he do that? Well, because a fleshly response for a warrior king would be tit for tat, right? He was going to be like, David could have said, hey, they're slandering me, speaking and plotting evil of me. I'm God's anointed. I'm the king. How dare they? I'll show them, right? But think about the consequences if David does that. There's going to be war. There's going to be violence. There's going to be death. And if God isn't in it, it's going to be disastrous, just like the Proverbs said. He's going to, his lips shall have destruction, right? It's going to be disastrous. So as, um, but also he knows that it's going to make him no different than his enemies are. And so how are you and I doing in that area? Are we stooping down to where our enemies are um, and becoming just like our enemies, right? Or are we leaving this up to the Lord, right? And so what David does is he goes and, and pleases the Lord. And this is a huge question kind of from the daily trenches, is it not? Is what do we do here when we're faced with this? Do we become like our enemies or do we stand tall and go to the Lord? So David knew what pleased the Lord and he prays for that. Another great lesson in prayer for this type of protection in the tough situations of life. So verse five continues and says, let the righteous strike me it shall be a kindness and let them rebuke, let him rebuke me. It shall be as excellent oil. Let my head not refuse it. And for, for still my prayer is against the deeds of the wicked. So in Proverbs 9, 8, it says, do not correct a scoffer lest he hate you, but rebuke a wise man and he'll love you. And so how glorious is wise counsel from the righteous. Now, some believe when it said, verse five says, let the righteous strike me. Some believe that's God himself. Others just say it's godly, godly man or woman in counsel. So either way, God's in it. God's speaking truth and love and love and truth to us. But essentially, it's a battle of righteousness and wickedness here. In other words, he's saying, let the righteous rebuke anything wicked out of me. Purify me for the battle. You know, take, take the wicked out of me because I'm going against the wicked. If I'm wicked, <laughs> I'm fighting the wicked. What, I'm no different than they are, right? Take this wickedness out of me because my prayer is still against the deeds of the wicked and if I'm going to have to face them I don't want you know I don't want to be like them so David desires to be in, a, in the right or the righteous camp and again what camp am I standing in and starting from what camp are you in and are needing to get into another great lesson in prayer and notice that prayer is his first weapon of choice so verse 6 it says their judges are overthrown by the sides of the cliff or the rock and they hear my words, for they are sweet. Our, verse 7 goes, Our bones are scattered at the mouth of the grave as one plows and breaks up the earth. And it seems like, you know, a lot of people avoid this. It's, these are very tough words. Warren Wearsby just said, these are tough to translate verses here, but perhaps, um, you know, it appears that David keeps praying for, for his enemies and he saw a day coming when God was going to be, going to judge them and vindicate his own cause. He was going to say, hey, you know, you were right in that. So David is looking forward. That's what you know, Wearsby thinks. Verse 8 says, But my eyes are upon you, O God the Lord. In you I take refuge. Do not leave my soul destitute or bare. Verse 9 says, Keep me from the snares they have laid for me and from the traps of the workers of iniquity. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I escape safely. And so this quote from... Uh, from Wearsby, sorry, I can't show it on the screen to you, but 
it says this, and this is, uh, to me, this really sums it up well. It says, life goes on and there's work to do. So we must not allow tough situations to paralyze us, but to energize us in trusting the Lord. So I'm going to read that again. Life goes on and there's work to do. So we must not allow tough situations to paralyze us, but to energize us in trusting the Lord. Life's trials are not excuses for doing nothing. They are opportunities for claiming God's promises and experiencing His miraculous power. I'm going to read that again. Life's trials are not excuses for doing nothing. They are opportunities for claiming God's promises and experiences miraculous power. Because sometimes, yeah, we have something just take us out and we're just paralyzed, right? We just like we can't do anything. And we and sometimes we don't feel like doing anything, but not so. God's at work, right? He's at work and uh, it should energize us. So David had much more work ahead of him and trials and obstacles and challenges, but so do you. And so do I. So let's take it to the Lord in prayer. Uh, it's a must-do thing. And you know, I just wrote, are we just surviving or are we thriving, right? We want to thrive as Christians, not just survive. And so to me, this, that quote from Wearsby really uh, drove that point home. All right, uh, Psalm 142, a plea for relief from persecutors, a contemplation, a mashkill of David, a prayer when he was in the cave. So I think, Gabe, you were, I think found a different cave picture since I, mine were lost. Yeah, that's the one I had too, so that's perfect. I figured Tim and Jan were spelunking in these caves of Adullam maybe perhaps when they were in Israel. But Adullam is about 13 miles southwest of Bethlehem. And right, so these are real caves. And so that's where David and his, that was his headquarters when he was hiding from Saul. He was in the caves. There we go. He's got a map as well. So, so yeah, that's where this psalm takes place. And so psalm, uh, verse 1, Psalm 142, I cry out to the Lord with my voice. With my voice to the Lord, I make my supplication. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare before him my trouble. So the beautiful thing is that David, uh, that is David took his situation directly before the Lord with his own voice and prayer, pouring out his heart to the Lord. He lays his trouble at his feet, it says. He doesn't try to pull out his own toolbox and fix it with some of his cockamamie schemes. I mean, he does do that later, as we know, but he doesn't do that here. He just goes right before the Lord. Verse 3 says, When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, some say fainted, when it fainted within me, then you knew my path in the way in which I would walk. They have secretly set a snare for me. Verse 4 says, Look on my right hand and see, for there is no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. So that's pretty tough stuff. He's pretty dark here. So in other words, I'm looking for some earthly consolation, a sign, anything, but there's no one. No one even acknowledges me or even cares for my soul. So he starts to talk about it's deep down in his soul. Nobody even cares for his own soul. So he's like, I'm just trying to hide from the world, and that isn't working either. And so like last week's, week's teaching, you alone, God, you alone can care for my soul. Anything else is nothing, right? So verse 5 says, I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. So you see what happens. He, it changes. He's now getting it. The Lord alone is it, both my refuge and my portion, the solid rock on which I stand for all other ground is sinking sand, right? 
Verse 6 continues, Attend, heed to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise your name. The righteous shall surround me, for you shall deal bountifully with me. So David, again, is setting a great example of taking it to the Lord in prayer first. And if you're thinking like that, that's easy for David to do. He's, got, you know, he's God's anointed. He's king. Well, it wasn't always easy for David to do, and he failed. He failed many times, and he failed majorly at times. And, you know, we read in the men's study this week that David did both, right? Sometimes he prayed for the Lord first to, 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 do, uh, to do his work, and it was great. But other times, not so much. Um, so does that sound familiar? I know that sounds familiar. I'm looking into the mirror uh, when I say that. So even the Israelites who knew that when they sought God's direction before battle, God gave them clear direction and he was with them. And we read last week about the singers going out first singing, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. And if you remember, they put the singers in front of the army and they said, sing this out. And they did. And God caused great confusion and the enemies wiped themselves out. They didn't even have to do anything. And so they went out. It, but the beauty is David, even when he was in deep, even when he was deep in his own cockamamie schemes, he was never closer to the Lord. God was orchestrating where he needs him and where he needs us to be. He does the same thing for us. Okay, Psalm 143. An earnest appeal for guidance and deliverance. A Psalm of David. So this is... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, penitential psalm. This is the last of seven penitential psalms. So Psalm 6, 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, and now 143. This is the last of the penitential psalms. And so the writers of these psalms were all being disciplined by God for and experiencing suffering. <clears throat> these psalms are here to help us when we need to confess our sins and grow closer to God. Is there ever a time not to be in that mode? I guess I wrote um, and we should always be there. But these psalms are there to help us when we need to confess our sins and grow closer to God. So who doesn't need that? So uh, 143, verse 1. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. In your faithfulness answer me, and in your righteousness. So as with other psalms, David packs a lot in these different statements and different requests to the Lord. But kind of the key verses here, if, if you will, verse 1, hear my prayer. And when you get down to verse 7, you're going to see it. He says, answer me spe speedily. So he's saying, hear my prayer. And then he, later he's going to say, answer me. Uh, and so look for that. So he's really appealing or speaking to God's character. So your faithfulness, he says, your faithfulness, in your faithfulness, answer me. So he's, David's not doing it in his own faithfulness. He said, your righteousness, right? And in your righteousness, do that, not David's righteousness. So he's lifting up God's character, not his own. So verse 2 says, Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no one living is righteous. So kind of like Noah's days, right? There was no one else righteous left. So David's wanting mercy that endures forever, but he's wanting judgment on his enemies. <laughs> so he's kind of wanting his cake and eat it too here. Can't blame him, right? But this is a penitential psalm. So he's like, I know I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. I'm your servant. It's not the other way around, right? So he's, he's coming clean. Verse 3 says, For the enemy has persecuted my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me dwell in darkness like those who have long been dead. 
And so, man, David is always very descriptive of, of his enemies and what they're doing and how it's impacting them. And some say maybe it's overly dramatic at times, but really he's just being real, right? He's just describing what's going on. And if you recall, David is in a cave. And so it says um, that he has made me dwell in darkness like those who have been long dead. So he's in a cave and this is just how he feels. And uh, he, he's being made in to dwell in darkness like a dead person. This is how he's feeling. Verse four says, therefore, my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is distressed. And again, we talked about uh, mercy, you know, providing comfort for the distressed. And David is here again. He's just saying it. I'm distressed. My heart's terribly distressed. So therefore, um, we have to see why it's therefore, right? So for these reasons, I'm overwhelmed and distressed. These things are just, they're weighing down on me. And this is a key theme uh, in, this, in this book, as we've talked about, um, that, that his mercy is going to give him, that God's mercy is going to give comfort for his distress. Verse 5 says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your works. I muse on the work of your hands. And so if you recall last week, uh, we talked about the good old days, right? And so when they were in exile... So they were in Babylon and they were exiled and they were looking back to Jerusalem and they were sad and they hung their harps on the trees, the weeping willows, and they were just like, man, they were yearning to like, man, why can't I just be back in Jerusalem? I, I, the good old days when we had it so good, God was there in his temple and everything. And so we just wish we were there. And so David's kind of saying that here, same thing, right? I remember the days of old, he says, I meditate on all your works. I muse on the work of your hands. And so just... Um, in other words, David's like, man, I'm just conjuring up these good old days because where I am, it sure ain't it, right? <laughs> I'm in a dark tunnel or I'm in a dark cave, like just like a dead person. So this isn't the good old days. And so these will be words for his people to recall when they're in exile. <laughs> so how awesome is that, right? He can give comfort to them uh, many years later. So when I hear meditate, I instantly go to Philippians 4.8. And uh, that's where my mind goes. And Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, or whatever whistles, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Right? And so David is saying, Man, I just meditate on all your works, Lord. And he's just like, I'm just trying to focus on the positive, the good, right? Even though I'm in this terrible place. And if there's one thing that we can do approaching any situation is this, meditate on whatever is good because God is good and anything apart from him is nothing. So why not do it? It would be dumb not to do it really. And so that's, that's available for us to do in our distress as well. So I spread out my hands to you. My soul longs for you like a thirsty land. And so, wow, what words, right? Not hiding it, really describing it. This is deep soul feelings again, thirsting for fellowship with God. And again, verse 7 is where we said it changes. He says, answer me speedily, O Lord. So again, hurry up, Lord. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit is failing. Do not hide your face from me, lest I be like those who go down into the pit or to go down to die. So he was already talking about being like a dead person in a cave. And here he is again. He's back down into the pit. Don't let me be like these ones going down and dying. So here we, here we hear that change. Answer me. He wants, to, he wants an answer now. He said, okay, you heard me. Now answer me. Please talk to me. Don't, don't, don't withhold yourself from me. He's desperate. 
I don't want to be here. I don't want to die. And so verse 8 says, cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning. So cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning. Like, give me another morning, right? I just want another morning. I don't want to die here. Just give me tomorrow. For, for in you do I trust. Cause me to know the way in which I should walk. So give me another morning. Show me which way I should walk. For I lift up my soul to you. Deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies. In you I take shelter. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Your spirit is good. Lead me in the land of uprightness. And so, man, what it's amazing, right? If I want to, uh, he's like, I want to live, and I want to feel your love just one more day, one more morning. And he trusts God will do it. He's looking forward now. He's like, man, I'm, I lift up my soul to you, Lord. Again, my soul, and uh, he's not now in pain, but he's like, I'm just lifting it up for you, Lord. It's, it's just yours. I'm just surrendering it over to you. And he's just pleading for deliverance from his enemies and speaking to the attributes of God. He's reminding himself, he's preaching to himself through this prayer. He's just, he's in the pit, but he's like, man, you know, when he thinks of God, like just, man, I just lift up my soul to you, God. And he just instantly, it's like, right? It's just lifting him up. And man, verse 11, revive me, O Lord. I mean, how many times, I don't say that a lot. I don't say it enough. It's just like telling you, right? I want, who wants revival? I want revival in my heart. Revive me, O Lord, for your namesake. And Psalm 119.25 says, My soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. And so last week we talked about God uh, exalting his name, but he exalts his word above his name, right? And so here we see, Revive me, O Lord, for your namesake, but also revive me according to your word, right? So praying for personal revival. Have I prayed like that? I need to. Recall from last week, right? He just he emphasizes this word above his name. So it's critical. His word is critical in times of trouble. David knows and shows us the way. He's just going to God's word and God's... All right, for, uh, for your righteousness sake, bring my soul out of trouble. Verse 12, in your mercy, cut off my enemies or bring an end to my enemies and destroy all those who afflict my soul. For I am your servant. What a great way to end. I'm just your servant, right? So it's only fitting that last week we studied how obvious it should be that we take our problem and our broken down lives to the Lord since he's the one who made us. He was the manufacturer. He has our manufacturer's warranty. And now in Psalms 140 to 143, we see four Psalms from David going to the Lord either before or during turbulent times, praying for protection from his enemies, from his sin, while he's in refuge, and from a divisive family situation. And you can really fill in the blank with any of your crises here as well, and so can I. But David covers a lot of ground in these four Psalms showing that going to the Lord in prayer enables or triggers his mercy that endures forever, his steadfast and loyal love, his said, right? It, just, it triggers it to kick in instantly. You know, we see it in the book that we're reading in the men's uh, study right now, which is by Alan Redpath, The Making of a man of God, lessons from the life of David. And in chapter 13, we found David at a deep valley trough experience. He was being hunted down by Saul. He actually fled so far from him and he joined the Philistines. He joined the enemy camp and he was in a position where we would have to attack his fellow Jews. And then the Philistines rejected him. And then the city where his wives and families were, where they were taking refuge was burnt to the ground and the entirety of his family were taken captive. So I don't know what kind of problems you have, but that's a pretty bad place, right? That's a pretty low place. Um, we know Christ was there lower, but have we been there? 
So, you know, David is in a really tough spot. So what does one do when he gets to such a place? What can he do? David encouraged himself in the Lord. We know from 1 Samuel 30, verse 6. He returned to sanity. So for the first time in months, so he had walked away kind of from the Lord for months, is what Alan is saying to us. And now he, he, he acquires of the Lord. So after not talking to the Lord for months, and he's in, a, he's in the enemy camp, ready to have to attack his own countrymen, everything I just read, right? And he inquires of the Lord. And uh, he said, should I pursue the, their troops and shall I overtake them? And so I, I just love how Redpath said it. He goes, did he have to earn God's favor again? Did he have to go on probation? Did he have to get additional training? No, God answered him immediately and said, pursue. And so the quote from, from Redpath here that to me really sums this up, it says, Immediately when David touched rock bottom, he turned back to God. At the very first uplifting of that tear-stained face, the very first moment of the Lord, uh, the Lord looked down and saw his broken-hearted child weeping until he could weep no more. Then heaven answered with an immediate word of power and victory and sent him out to conquer. That moment became for David the gateway into victory, the stepping stone into blessing, and the beginning of the accomplishment of God's purpose for his life. So David, even after this, what an amazing thing that God just answered him immediately, even though he was in a horrific place. And sometimes we feel like, hey, I'm too far gone for God to get to me. And that's just a lie from the pit, right? It's just the lie of the devil that there's no place where you can go. David was pretty about as far away as you can be. And he just said, pursue. And I, he answered them immediately. And yet David still screwed up you know, royally, well, literally, I guess, after this experience, right? The Bathsheba experience comes after this. But God's patience, his mercy endures forever, which we heard so much last week. Just inquire of the Lord and he will be faithful to listen. And how much more so if we were continually obedient and inquiring before the Lord before, during, and after all of our situations and all of our distress. So Satan's going to ramp up the heat of the, the heat of his battle uh, but on this side of the cross, we start from a point of victory and, uh, with and in Christ. So maybe you have no history or experience in going to the Lord with your issues. Just start it. Follow David's examples that are written for us here and, and follow his examples and his process. And the Lord is going to be so, so, so pleased if you and I go to him. And isn't that what we're supposed to be all about? pleasing him. I think I asked you at the beginning, who wants to please the Lord? And we all said yes. So man, just do it. You all said you wanted to at the beginning. So let's commit to doing it before, during, and after our distresses. But maybe you're like, I don't even know God. That I don't even know the God that you're talking about praying to like this. So how can I even do that? Well, if you haven't surrendered your life to Christ and you don't have a relationship with him, well, today's the day of salvation. You know, come up and pray. Pray with us after the service because you know what? Nothing would please God more than that as well as all the angels in heaven would love to see it. So God bless you guys and uh, hopefully this has been a blessing to you like it has been to me and what a great example of how we're to take it to the Lord in prayer. All right. Have a, have a blessed night.